Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Revelation 21, 1 through 5. The passage can be found on page 10 of the bulletin and will also be projected above. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Anna. That is the uh, exact right way to read that passage. It's glorious. Okay, uh, kids, I, uh, I mentioned your Trinity Kids uh, bulletin earlier. So there are three things that I want you to listen for. You can jot them down on that, on that bulletin. Here they are. The first is homesickness. Secondly, tornadoes. And then thirdly, there are going to be two quotes. That's right, two from the Jesus Storybook Bible today. So I want you to listen for those. Homesick, tornadoes, two quotes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we look at these, uh, these great words together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word this day, and we thank you, Lord, specifically for this glorious passage. Father, we pray that this vision of hope, this vision of what will come because of our Lord Jesus would be impressed upon us today. And that above all, we might come to know and believe the love that your son Jesus has for us. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, there was uh, something that I I was thinking this week that I feel as though I need to to share with you all. And uh, it has the potential to alter your view of me, uh, possibly even in some cases undercut some of um, my ministry to you as a pastor. And, uh, but I feel as though I need to say it. And it's this, I'm not originally from Texas. There it is, okay? I'm sorry about that. I regret it, but, uh, but that's the truth, okay? Uh, so one of the biggest things then that, uh, that I had to adjust to over 20 years ago in moving here was uh, the, the way in which Texans love Texas. That was a new thing for me. Texans love all things about Texas, and they've got this great ability to even look past the things that aren't great about Texas, and the reason for that is because there aren't any, Right? And, uh, and so the time that this really came home to me uh, was when I was a youth director at, at Fort Worth Prez, and uh, we had just spent a week in Estes Park, Colorado. We had been at the YMCA of the Rockies at RYM Colorado, which is actually uh, where our high schoolers are going to go this summer as well. And so we've just been in literally one of the most beautiful places in the entire world. 
We had hiked in Rocky Mountain National Park. We had enjoyed a full week of no humidity, a week of temperatures with highs in the 70s in the summer, all right? We had uh, sat out on this porch on these incredible rocking chairs and looked out at the Rocky Mountains surrounding us. So, I mean, it, it was an unbelievable week. It didn't get much better than that. So at the end of the week, uh, we're, we're driving back in our 12 passenger vans and we're about at the halfway point, which is when you cross into Texas. Um, you, we were crossing over from uh, New Mexico into Texas and at that point, one of the high school girls in the back starts cheering. And, and, and she's talking about how happy she is to finally be back home in Texas. And we've been gone a week, right? And I'm kind of thinking like, do you know where we just were? Like, do you realize where we have spent the last week? But, but it, it was this um, uh, great, if maybe a little bit confusing picture of a Texan's love for her home. And while that might be a little bit of an extreme example of love of your home, every one of us knows that feeling, a real love of your home. And we also know at the same time what it feels like to be homesick. And so uh, kids, you might've felt this maybe the first time that you, that you slept over at a friend's house, maybe even when you went to your grandparents' house and you have this feeling in your stomach where, where you start missing your home and you wish that you were back there, or college students. Maybe you felt this the first semester that you went off to school, and you missed your home in ways that you didn't expect. But here's the thing that's really interesting, though, and it's a little bit odd. There are times where you can feel homesick while you're at home. When you feel this sort of longing for a place that you've never actually even been to, and yet there's a part within you that cries out for it, that aches for it. And so what what the Bible says is that the reason every single one of us has that feeling of longing within us is that we were actually created to live in a world that really was our home. It was a world where, where our relationship to God was marked by this sort of unhindered joy and delight where our relationships with one another would not be marked by by shame and hiding and conflict, but instead would be marked by this sort of friendship, this joy, this love. And it was a a world where where the, the world around us was free of sin and suffering and death. It's this longing for a world where things are the way they're supposed to be. See, that's what your heart aches for. But the Bible also says that we have been exiled from that home. And so really, all that we get now are sort of these these, these faint echoes of that home. And so the way C.S. Lewis describes this is as a desire for a far-off country that we find in ourselves even now. He he, he describes this as as music we are born remembering music that we were born remembering. And so you get these sort of short glimpses, these snapshots of that world from time to time. It might happen when you're, you're overwhelmed with, with the beauty of something that you see in God's world. It could be where, where you're undone by, by some movie that you've seen or, or a song that you hear or that moment when you are so overcome with the deep love that you have for your child that feels so intense that it's almost as though it could break you in two. That is the true home that you and I long for. 
And here is the great news of what we are celebrating today. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, that hope, that longing, that ache that you feel is not in vain. Because of Easter, the fulfillment of that hope and the satisfaction of that longing is certain. And the reason for that is because the one who rose from the grave said, behold, I am making all things new. And so what we have in this great passage in Revelation 21 is a picture of that. It's a, it's a vision given to the apostle John by Jesus while John was in exile on the island of Patmos. And here's what's really important for us. It's meant to give hope to people who are suffering. And the particular part that we're looking at here are the final chapters, which are this, this picture of the future. And the picture you get here is of the home that you and I long for. And it's a home that, that one day will be because Jesus rose from the dead. So here's what I want us to see on this Easter Sunday. Because Jesus rose from the dead, all things will one day be made new. So four things that I wanna highlight from this passage. Here's the first. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God will make this world new. He'll make this world new. So first one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So I think we need to start here because one of the main misconceptions about Christianity is that the story of the Bible ends with Christians dying and going to heaven. That, that they go then to this immaterial world where we exist in these disembodied souls and that that is the end of the story. And here's the deal. When you think about that home, or that world that you long for, that's not what you think of, right? And, and, and thankfully, that's not what John describes here either. What John pictures here is the hope of this world being made new. And that's something, that there's something really important that this says to us, that, that, that the problem with this world is not that it's physical. So remember, all the way back in Genesis 1, God created this world, God created our bodies, and he said that they were good. The problem with, with this world is that this good physical world is now under the curse of sin. Because what happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what they did is, is something that not just affected them alone, but it actually impacted the entire creation by that one act of disobedience, they plunged this world, this creation itself, into this state now of corruption, of death, of decay. So when one of our sons was about five years old, we had been talking some about how Adam and Eve's sin had broken God's good world. And so this is kind of starting to, to come home to them a bit. And so our five-year-old says this to Jeanette. He says, I sure wish Adam and Eve didn't eat that fruit. And Jeanette says, well, okay, yeah, why? And Jack says, well, because I really just don't like tornadoes. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> that, it, it, that's what sin has done to God's good world. It's made it into this world that now has natural disasters, that now has pandemics, that now has wars and droughts and all of these things that, that, that impacted creation itself. And so what Paul says in Romans 8 is that now creation itself is groaning under the effects of this curse. And that the creation itself is actually waiting with this eager longing to be set free from that bondage to decay. 
So what John sees in Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of creation's longing. It's this vision of a world made new, a world that has been transformed by God. And, and that's part of what he's getting at where he, he says the sea was no more. You could read that and you sort of think like, okay, is he saying that there won't be oceans or, or seas in the new heavens and the new earth? And no, he's not saying that. Although his one who is, uh, uh, gets seasick really easily, for me, that doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world. But here's the reason that he says that. He says that because in the Bible, the sea is usually associated with evil, with uh, destruction, and with chaos. And so you think, for example, uh, of the flood in Noah's day. The, the, the waters were, were all about destruction at that point. And even in the book of Revelation, this is earlier in Revelation 13, and this is symbolic language, but the beast is portrayed as coming up out of the sea. So the sea represents that sort of destruction and chaos. And what John is saying is that all of that evil, all of that destruction, all of that chaos that our sin brought into this world is gonna be gone. And that this world will finally be set free. And by the way, this is part of why it is so significant that Jesus rose from the grave bodily. And it's why the New Testament authors uh, emphasize it over and over again. And here's why. It's because what God did for Jesus' body is what he will one day do for this entire world. Because the end of the biblical story here is that if you have put your faith in Jesus, then you will inhabit this world in a new, resurrected, glorified body that is like his. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God will make this world new. That's the first thing to see. Here's the second. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God will make you new. He will make you new. Verse two. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, what's John saying here? What he's doing is he's using a couple different images here to describe God's people. One is as this, this holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And so it sounds here like he's talking about a place but he's actually talking about a people. And this is the way that he's talked about his people in the past, specifically in the New Testament. I'm gonna read you one passage. In Isaiah 65, he says this. This is in the description of the new heaven and the new earth. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. You see, that's what he's talking about in Revelation 21. But now what he's saying is that that people has now been made new. And it's even clearer in the second image, a bride adorned for her husband. This is one of the ways that, that, that God throughout the Bible describes his relationship to his people. One example of this, Isaiah 62, God says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then maybe the, the most well-known passage is Ephesians 5. Paul there compares the relationship of Jesus to the church to a marriage to the relationship of a groom to his bride. I'm gonna read this to you, but what I want you to listen for here is the way that Jesus, or is what Jesus does for his bride. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, that is what God will do for you 
his bride. This is a picture of you having been made new. Why is this so important to see? Well, I think because one of the reasons that you and I have that longing and that ache for a new world is that we realize that the problem is not just outside of us, that the problem is inside of us. The problem is me. It's my sin, it's my selfishness, it's my pride, it's my envy, it's my lust, it's my, it's my anger. And so the question then is, what does the resurrection say to me about my sin? Well, it says a few things. One is this. It says that the penalty of your sin has now been paid. See, the resurrection of Jesus is what shows that the death of Jesus was fully sufficient to pay the price for your sins. And so the way Tim Keller puts this is that the the resurrection of Jesus is like stamping paid in full on the ledger of your guilt. It is the declaration that, that all of your sin has been washed away because of Christ's death and his resurrection shows that. That's one thing. Secondly though, the resurrection shows that the power of sin in your life has been broken. And so the, the, the way Paul puts this in Romans 6 is to say that you are now no longer a slave to sin. That sin is no longer your master. And that is all because Jesus rose from the dead. Here's the hard thing though. That's that even if you have put your faith in Jesus this afternoon, and you know, and maybe even you'd say, I, I, I know that the penalty of my sin and the power of sin has been broken and dealt with in my life. But here's the problem. It still feels like the very presence of sin in my life is having its way with me. And I think that's especially true when you think about all of those deep-seated, unhealthy patterns in your life that you can trace all the way back to as long as you can remember. Or those, those tendencies or habits or, or things that, that really have passed over from the category of habit into the category now of addiction. Or those things about you that as you have gotten older are those things that you've just tried to make peace with because you've given up hope that those things could ever possibly change. See, the promise of Jesus in this passage is that there will come a day when the very presence of sin in your life will be gone. A day when he will restore the whole of who you are, body and soul, And it'll be a day when your desires, even your desires will be rightly ordered. You'll want the right things and you'll want them to the right degree. And you'll not want the things that you shouldn't want. It'll be a day when you are set free from those sins that right now feel like won't let you go. And it's because Jesus is going to one day present you in splendor. He's gonna present you as a bride adorned for her husband. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God will make you new. That's the second thing to see. Thirdly, because Jesus rose from the dead, God will dwell with you forever. God will dwell with you forever. One of the most basic claims of the Bible is that you were created to be near God. 
and that your ultimate joy, your ultimate satisfaction is actually found in knowing him. And, and people have described this in all sorts of different ways. Uh, the way St. Augustine put this, he was a North African bishop in the, the end of the fourth century, in, uh, beginning of the fifth century. He said this, he put it in terms of a longing for rest. Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But here's what's interesting. Others have talked about this in terms of feeling God's absence. And this is true uh, even of those who are not Christians. So uh, one atheist writer, his, named, uh, his name's Julian Barnes, he later turned to an agnostic, and he wrote this in his memoir. He said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That is because you were created to dwell with God. And it's actually why God created humanity in the first place. It was to be with them, to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day and to enjoy them. And so here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this in the Jesus Storybook Bible. From the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. He would make people to share his forever happiness. They would be his children and the world would be their perfect home. The problem, of course, is that we in our sin have rejected that. We have rejected that kind of relationship with this kind of God and instead have turned from him. Here is the incredible message of the Bible. The God of the Bible did not stop loving his people. And so the rest of the Bible from Genesis three onward is a story about what God would do to have you back. Why? So that one day he could be near to you once again. And I mention all of that because what you get in Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of God's longing. And it's all over this passage. One of the places you see that is in this marital language that we already talked about in, in verse two, but you really see this in verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place, or literally tabernacle, of God is with man. He will dwell or tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Okay, what's John saying? Well, he's using the, the, this Old Testament language, this Old Testament language of the tabernacle initially and then later on the temple to describe God's relationship to his people. Now, why, why is that so important? It's important because the tabernacle was the place where God drew near to his people. And what I want you to see here is that God's heart, God's intent all along was to once again be with you. That's what the tabernacle was all about. That's what the temple later was all about. That's what the coming of Christ was all about. And so what Revelation 21 is, is the fulfillment of that, God, that promise that God had made to Abraham all of those years ago to be a God to him and that they would be his people. And he would do everything necessary to make that happen. And so this might go without saying, but I'm gonna say it anyway. That the reason at the end of the day that the new heavens and the new earth will be so great is because God himself will be there. And we will finally, after long last, enjoy being near to him without the hindrance of our sin. And that's something that is hard to even imagine right now, but that is your future. And it is your future because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Fourthly and finally, 
Because Jesus rose from the dead, God will make everything sad come untrue. So there are all kinds of things that, that, that are on that list of our longing for a new world. So many things that we are hoping for and aching for. But at the top of that list is a longing for death itself to be done away with. And it is right to feel that way. Like one of the most important things that Easter does for us is to remind us every single year that death is an enemy. That death is not natural and that death is not the way it's supposed to be. Why do I say that? Well, because those are the kinds of things that we end up telling ourselves in an effort to try to deal with this experience of how awful death really is. And so we, we, we say things like, you just need to make peace with it. Or, or, or death is natural. It's just a part of life. You've got to come to terms with it. So every Easter, I mentioned this book by Nicholas Wolterstorff. It's a book called Lament for a Son. And it's his own personal account of his struggle with the grief of losing his 25-year-old son in this freak mountaineering accident. And so uh, he's recounting the story of someone telling his wife, I hope you're learning to, learn to live at peace with Eric's death. And his response is to say, God never makes peace with death. He says that the Bible speaks instead of God's overcoming death. Paul calls it the last great enemy to be overcome. God is appalled by death. My pain over my son's death is shared by his pain over my son's death. You see, that's what Easter reminds us of, that Easter, that, that, that death is an enemy. It reminds us that God hates death. And what the resurrection of Jesus shows us is that that enemy has been defeated. That death itself has been overcome and that death does not get the final word, but instead life does. And so that's what Jesus promises in verse four. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So here's what that means. It means that your tears your sadness, your suffering, your sorrow all have an expiration date. That they will, with certainty, come to an end. Because there is a world that is coming in which there will be no mourning, in which there will be no crying, in which there will be no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, and most gloriously, no death. How is that possible? How is it possible for God to do this? It is possible because 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the very Son of God, gave himself over to death. He went in to death and he felt the full wrath of it. But three days later, that same Jesus came out the other side of death on that first Easter morning and he conquered it. And as he did that, God's new world dawned. 
See, what's amazing about that is that Jesus' resurrected body is actually a part of this new creation that has broken into this old creation. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus, that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And it's why at the end of verse 5, he can say this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy, trustworthy and true. Every bit of what he has just said will happen because of Easter. So let me close with another quote from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones describes this glorious final scene of the Bible. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be made more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was gonna be so great, it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. See, that is the hope of the resurrection. And it is that hope, it is that future that Jesus offers to you. He invites you to put your faith and your trust in him. And as you do that, it is a guarantee that one day you will inhabit that new world in a glorious resurrected body with him. And that everything sad will come untrue. That is the one who offers himself to you. Will you receive him? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious vision of the world that is to come. Father, we pray that you would enable us to fix our eyes on our resurrected King, the one who will one day bring this world about. And we pray, Father, as John does, that our Lord Jesus would come and that he would come quickly. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.